we're so used to seeing things that, in my opinion, aren't quite right in our treatment of animals. Yeah, the less we eat, the less violence is being done and the less destruction to the environment. Everyone eats and everyone has to make a moral decision every time that we sit down to the table. And welcome to the Animal Voices radio show, Western Canada's only radio program dedicated to animal advocacy and compassionate living. This is 100.5 FM co-op radio CFRO on unceded M ancestral Tsleil-Waututh, Musqueam, and Squamish territories in so-called Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada, Turtle Island. Today is Friday, April 23rd, 2021. And I will be your host, Grace Wampold. This week, I wanted to do something a bit different. We will be discussing exotic pets and the exotic pet trade that is quite present in the U.S. More big cats are raised in captivity than in the wild. So we're going to be going over big cats, um, using audio from a Vice documentary, and we're also going to be sharing a more recent issue highlighted by Robert Tolpe of TikTok and YouTube about the exotic pet trade of TikTok. We will also be talking about the Vancouver Aquarium and their recent sale to an American company. So stay tuned for a show packed with a lot of interesting content and probably some things that you might have not known about how we treat these animals that we don't see very often. Companion animals that aren't your run-of-the-mill cats and dogs. Of course, the full-length videos of all of our audio clips shared today will be on this week's web post, so please go to animalvoices.org if you want to get extended versions of some of the content we'll be discussing today. Stay tuned and stay cool! The Greater Vancouver Food Bank has been providing support for our cities for almost 40 years and has been vital to helping thousands of community members through the COVID-19 crisis. To find out how you might benefit from the Greater Vancouver Food Bank's services or to learn how you might donate money or volunteer your time, please visit their website at foodbank.bc.ca. For this week's news, I want to start by discussing the Vancouver Aquarium, which has been sold to a privately owned tourism company based in the United States in order to avoid shutting down as a result of financial losses over the past year. The aquarium has announced the sale to the Hershend Enterprise on Thursday, saying the deal was made to save the aquarium from permanent closure as a result of severe financial challenges related to the COVID-19 pandemic. Now, this is really interesting for a number of reasons, one being that we've seen in the past few years Vancouver calling the Vancouver Aquarium an important place for conservation and education on wildlife. But seeing this sale suggests to us that in fact, they're just trying to make money. This is something that the members and supporters of the Vancouver Aquarium have to open their eyes to and realize that this is not about education and research. This is about entertainment, and they've just proved it to us once again. It's never been about the individual animals. It's about making money. The Vancouver Aquarium was the first public aquarium in Canada when it opened in the 50s. 
and OceanWise has been running out of the aquarium since 2017. As part of the sales agreement, Hershen will donate 1% of its annual gross revenues from the aquarium to OceanWise to support this conservation program. Now, evidently, we've been talking a lot about eco-labels on the show. Eco-labels such as OceanWise or Dolphin Safe, as we've all heard recently on Seaspiracy, are farcical. OceanWise is often stolen, often lied about, and often used at restaurants across Vancouver without actually being part of the OceanWise program. And if you don't believe me, you can go on to OceanWise and see which restaurants are part of the OceanWise community, and then double-cross that to any restaurant you've gone to in the past few weeks that serves seafood. So, you know, we could have a whole episode on the Vancouver Aquarium, and honestly, I think we might. This sale, I think, just goes back to the fact that we shouldn't be keeping cetaceans, large animals, or even small fish, for that matter, in containment. It's morally and socially wrong to put large animals in bathtubs for the rest of their lives. One thing that I also want to discuss, which is far more controversial, is that Herchand, which was originally founded by two brothers in Missouri in the 1950s, owns a dozen theme parks and amusement parks and water parks and aquariums in the southern United States. Hershend has been criticized for managing a place called Stone Mountain Park in Georgia. Stone Mountain Park has been a gathering spot for white supremacists for decades now. This park has the largest Confederate monument ever built, with sculptures of Confederate leaders carved into granite at this place. Protesters have long called for the carvings to be removed. However, they are still there. So when we think about the Vancouver Aquarium, I would really, really urge our listeners to consider who they're supporting when they go to the aquarium. Not only are they supporting the confinement of large, large, large numbers of sentient individuals, they're also funding an organization that has been known to support white supremacy for decades. Veganism is about ending oppression. And the existence of aquariums is a constant reminder, not only of the oppression of non-humans, but of how we've systematically oppressed humans alike for centuries at this point. They're trying to do this to save the aquarium, but really, what is there left to save? In other news, I would like to share the information about a film called Real Fur. Real Fur is a movie that is currently being produced by Arise Productions, focused on ending fur farming in Canada. If you go to realfurfilm.com, which will be linked on our web post, you can sign the petition to ban fur farming in Canada and sign up for a newsletter to stay informed about this film. Producer Timur Chowdhury decided to make a film that captures his own journey from uninformed consumer to a conscious consumer. I think this film is interesting because Chowdhury talks more about how we all have a level of ignorance and insensitivity when we come to buying, and we all need to come clean about our personal stories flaunting fashion and and fur to now being horrified at the truth and the suffering that animals endure for this industry. This film is poignantly inviting animal lovers to achieve the end to animal fur farming. Many beloved animal activists are backing this film, including Ingrid Newkirk. 
Because the movie is low on funding, they're asking people who are interested to help make a donation to finalize this film. So if you're curious about this content and want to get involved or make a donation, go to our web post and we will help link you up with this film. And now I'm going to hand off the mic to Robert Tolpe to talk to you guys a bit about the exotic pet trade of TikTok and how TikTok has been influencing people to want to have more exotic, less stereotypical companion animals in their home and what that might mean for our environment as well as these individuals. Hi, I'm Robert Tolpe. There's a concerning trend I've noticed on TikTok recently. And that is the normalization of owning an exotic pet. From lorises to mantises, these adorable pets come in all sizes and species. But there's one thing that they all have in common. No one should own these wild animals as pets. So I'm wondering why there's this uptick in exotic pet videos in my feed. My awareness of this problem began with an influencer feeding her orchid mantis a delicious wasp. The video didn't really stand out to me until another TikToker pointed out that in the wild, orchid mantises are incredibly rare. And the little rainforest habitat they have left is being destroyed by deforestation especially by the palm oil industry. But certainly that shouldn't matter, as orchid mantises purchased by responsible owners are raised in captivity, right? And I'm sure this influencer researched where her orchid mantis came from and got it from a reputable breeder. However, this is not where my concern lies. My concern stems from the thousands of comments on these videos expressing interest in buying an orchid mantis. And the fact that ever since these videos went viral, basically all reputable sellers of orchid mantises have been out of stock for months, leaving room for less than reputable vendors to fill that gap in sales. You see, poaching is another threat to wild orchid mantis populations, and bug smuggling is at an all-time high. In 2018, U.S. Customs at JFK seized 245 cylinders containing orchid mantis eggs, and just last November, officials at the Cincinnati Port of Entry discovered an illegal shipment of mantis eggs hidden inside plastic children's toys. And these are just the shipments we know about. No doubt countless many more mantises have been poached or smuggled to fill this insatiable demand for exotic bugs that these influencers have only amplified. I don't want to slander these influencers, especially Hannah, but unfortunately, influencers like her are doing a great deal of harm the very species that they care so deeply about. It's not only orchid mantises that concern me. I've also seen viral videos featuring a very rare and endangered animal known as a slow loris. These primates are adorable, but owning one as a pet is a terrible idea. The vast majority of them are smuggled into the countries where pet owners buy them because they are highly illegal to own in most parts of the world. As cute as they look, slow lorises have disturbingly sharp teeth so traders normally excise them, which can cause infection and death. In fact, between 30 and 90% of all slow lorises die before they ever reach their owners. Despite these facts, videos on social media featuring these primates get millions of views instead of the people who film them getting into legal trouble. Irresponsible owners are rewarded with likes and shares. And after seeing so many videos of these exotic pets, you can start to see the patterns in the kinds of people who make them. So what does the general profile of one of these exotic pet owners look like? I'm going to focus on the case of Nika, who is a mid-sized wildcat known as a caracal. 
because her situation is pretty typical when it comes to the shady, exotic pet side of TikTok. First off, frequently the owners of these pets live in countries, in this case, Russia, where laws regarding exotic pets are basically non-existent. When it comes to the competency of these owners, from what I've seen, your average TikTok exotic pet owner is woefully ill-equipped to take care of their animal. Although some exotic pet owners fare better than others, this isn't the case when it comes to Nika. And it's clear from these videos that the cat is not being properly taken care of. Although I'm not a vet, commenters point out that she is visibly overweight. Even more concerningly, but not surprisingly, the animal has no proper enclosure and is allowed to roam the owner's house freely. The owner has many small domestic pets that the animal interacts directly with. This shows that she clearly doesn't know just how dangerous caracals are, which is weird because a quick Google search will bring up stories like this. A mother and her six-year-old daughter were hospitalized after an attack by an exotic cat which was seen prowling the neighborhood streets of Bloomington, Illinois. It was a caracal. It's a small cat typically found in the wild in Africa and Central Asia, capable of leaping 12 feet in the air to attack its prey. The fact is, she and her other pets are in danger of being severely injured or killed by this animal. It simply does not belong in someone's home. But despite this, there is such a prodigious incentive, in the financial sense especially, to continue to own these pets to the point at which I don't think the owners care anymore. For instance, Nika's owner uses her animal to sell pet products in her e-commerce store. But there's also private owners of exotic animals on TikTok who profit directly off of their animals by selling tickets to have experiences with them. And they use their platforms as a viral marketing tool to sell these tickets. Anyone who's seen Tiger King will recognize the familiar name of one of these influencers, Doc Antle. Yeah, that Doc Antle. His page is filled with videos of tigers and other animals acting completely adorable at his complex. What could possibly be wrong with that? Well, it turns out his operation is exploitative, unregulated, and should probably be shut down immediately. I'm not sure how aware TikTok is of just how despicable this man is, as they not only allowed him to garner a following of over 1.9 million people, but he was verified by TikTok. That's right, they gave him their seal of approval, and he's allowed to have a number to call in his bio to purchase tickets to his events. Book a photo session at Preservation Station. And this is all despite the fact that the Humane Society has uncovered that he breeds the tigers that he uses in these TikToks at an obscene rate, as many as 50 per season, to satisfy the demand for these cub petting activities, not only for his operation, but for others as well. According to the Humane Society, he sells his tigers illegally across state lines, clearly with zero regard to their health. As part of their undercover investigation, as reported in Rolling Stone, they followed a cub named Sarabi, who was pulled away from its mother at three weeks old, driven 19 hours from Doc Antle's South Carolina Park all the way to Oklahoma, and on the day of the cub's arrival to another park, came into direct contact with 27 visitors despite being infected with ringworm. It goes to show just how little these breeders care about the animals they transport, and it also shows just how little they care about the danger these animals pose to the health and safety of their clientele. In this case, when it comes to the diseases that these animals may carry. 
And while a ringworm-infected tiger certainly is a health concern, there are a lot worse things than a rash. For instance, the diseases transmitted by this little guy, who seems pretty innocent, but his presence anywhere near people is bad news. That's because he's a kind of rodent known as a Gambian pouched rat, a species kept as an exotic pet that viewers of John Oliver may recognize single-handedly caused the 2003 monkeypox epidemic in the United States. They are an African species native to Ghana. So I can only imagine the surprise of the doctors at a Wisconsin clinic when they discovered that their patient had been infected with a disease never before seen on the continent of North America. Luckily, out of the 47 cases tracked down by the CDC, none of them were fatal. But next time some crazy exotic pet loaded with some horrible disease comes into the US, we might not be so lucky. In fact, experts point to exotic pets as a likely source of the world's next pandemic. While some animals might carry deadly diseases, others are a plague in their own right. Like this long boy. Isn't he adorable? He is a Burmese python, a kind of snake at the center of one of the worst cases of exotic species in the United States. On August 23rd, 1992, Category 5 Hurricane Andrew was tearing up the Florida coast just south of Miami, destroying buildings with wind speeds reaching upwards of 150 miles an hour. A breeding facility filled with baby Burmese pythons happened to be in its path. Hundreds of baby snakes fled the damaged complex and ended up in the Florida Everglades, which is native to many rare and endangered species. As the snakes grew and reproduced, they wreaked havoc on the delicate wetland ecosystem, devouring everything in their path. So just how much of an impact did these snakes have on the Everglades? Well, in 2012, the U.S. Geological Survey conducted a study that found that populations of raccoons, opossums, and bobcats dropped by 87 to 99 percent since 1997, and marsh rabbits, cottontail rabbits, and foxes effectively disappeared because of these ravenous snakes. There is currently no comprehensive plan to fix this issue, and it seems for now the fauna of the Everglades is at the mercy of legislators who don't seem to care enough to prevent owners from releasing their giant pets out into the wild. And this goes beyond just the reptile trade. Exotic fish, for example, can destroy entire ecosystems as well. Just look how aquarium releases of lionfish starting in the 1980s have resulted in the destruction of coral ecosystems in the Atlantic, the Gulf of Mexico, and the Caribbean. But the danger they pose to these ecosystems doesn't stop TikTokers from owning them as pets. What I'm happy about is that I'm not the only person who has noticed this issue. Insider wrote a great article about it. The expert that Insider interviewed, an exotic vet, stated the reason why videos of exotic pets on social media are so harmful is that they inspire people to purchase these pets, whether or not they have the means or knowledge or experience to take care of them which in this veterinarian's experience results in these pets being harmed or killed. TikTok says that they do not allow content displaying the harm of animals on their platform, but it is nearly impossible to moderate content that doesn't explicitly harm animals, but encourages users to partake in harmful behavior towards them. I hope to see the platform take further steps to limit the reach of videos displaying people keeping dangerous animals as pets, just out of the interest of keeping people safe especially people who might be younger, the kind of people who are watching these TikToks. And I hope that regulators take this opportunity to crack down on the illicit exotic pet trade 
and ownership of exotic pets by incompetent people in general. Anyways, if you like this, share and subscribe. It would mean a lot to me. Maybe even check out my Patreon. And I hope you have a great week. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for sharing this content with us. I want to give a big shout out to Robert Tolpe letting us use this audio on our show. And you can see so much more at Robert's YouTube channel, just called Robert Tolpe. So check our show notes for more about that. 100.5 means non-commercial, listener-powered, community radio. 100.5 means music, public affairs. And arts programming. I wish I loved the human race. I wish I loved its city face. You won't find anywhere else on the radio dial. 100.5 is not owned by a huge corporation. We are owned and operated by people like you, by your community. 100.5 CFRO Vancouver Cooperative Radio. Find our complete program schedule at coopradio.org. Now, some of you might know that we're in the midst of our spring fundraising drive. So I wanted to share a few words that Allison sent to me about why she donates to Co-op Radio and why she's a member. So take a listen, hear her out, and consider donating at coopradio.org, making sure to note Animal Voices as your program of choice. I like to donate to Animal Voices $10 a month because I really love public radio. I'm one of the few young people that listens to public radio and I want to keep it going because I know that it is hard to be publicly funded and to have no corporate sponsorships and to have very few advertisements on radio. I really hate having to hear ads for life insurance while I'm just trying to learn a bit about cicadas or orangutans or frogs or raccoons. So consider becoming a member and help us out to get you better content and more of it. Here's Allison. It is our annual spring member drive here at Vancouver Co-op Radio, which runs from April 10th to 24th. And what that means is that it's that time of the year where we ask you, our listeners, to please show your support of the Animal Voices Show and Co-op Radio by making a monetary contribution to help keep our show on the air. So you might be wondering, why do we need money? Yes, it's true that Animal Voices is all volunteer run, but Vancouver Co-op Radio is a non-commercial radio station and registered charity, in case you didn't know. So that means that we rely on paid memberships and donations from our supporters to keep our station running and thriving. A wide supportive membership base is critical to the radio station's existence and, more importantly, defines who we are and what keeps us independent and unique. And part of what keeps us independent and unique is the fact that we have no commercials here on Co-op Radio to stifle what we do. We are a public affairs show, and as part of that at Co-op Radio, we try to provide airtime to many social groups who are frequently ignored by the conventional media and we aim to cover issues and events from the perspective of the social movements involved in addressing them. And for our show, that's the animal rights movement. I'm proud to be a member of Co-op Radio, and that is because I fully support the mission of our radio station, and I love that we volunteers here have the freedom to use our shows as a platform for activism and education throughout not just our own local community, but to everyone in the whole world via the internet and podcasting. 
and the issues that we broadcast about are relevant to everyone. I've been here at the station and producing shows at Animal Voices since 2009, and I've had the opportunity to personally reach out to all kinds of activists, nonprofit organizations, academic scholars, or just individuals who have a message to share for the animals. And it gives me a sense of powerful satisfaction, you could say, to be able to share and deliver these messages to you, and to have the potential to reach out to thousands of people throughout the airwaves and beyond. And when I go back and look at my records to see the names of all the people who we've spoken to in the past to share their messages of understanding issues related to animal activism, liberation, veganism, and other animal issues, it makes me proud to know that I've been a part of making this all happen. Animal Voices is my passion and I'm honored to be here every Friday to keep spreading the message of compassionate living to as many people as possible. So essentially... You go to cooperadio.org, press become a member, get your membership, and when you get your membership, you can either donate online, call 604-684-8494 with the extension 230 to take your membership pledge, or by mail to 370 Columbia Street, Vancouver, British Columbia. If you donate online, you just click the little link that says donate online press become press click here to become a member choose the amount you'd like to support and which radio program you'd like to fund we suggest animal voices radio and you can decide whether or not you'd like an annual or monthly membership it's really intuitive and you should give it a try and now for a segment dedicated to raccoons Animal Logic has presented us with this amazing audio about our very favorite little friend with opposable thumbs, the raccoon. Enjoy, and I hope you learned something. While Rocket Raccoon from Guardians of the Galaxy can talk, shoot, and get hammered, real-life raccoons surprisingly have actual superpowers. For most living in the city, raccoons are the most common form of wildlife that you'll see. In Toronto, estimates are that there are over 100 raccoons per square kilometer. In some parts of Washington, D.C., the estimates are over 300 per square kilometer. Now, despite being native to North America, they have accidentally spread worldwide, taking a special liking to Germany and Japan. So what makes raccoons so well-suited to the urban lifestyle? Raccoons evolved to eat just about anything. They are omnivores, just like humans. This allows them to find foods in lots of places, and means that they have a brain that's capable of figuring out what is and isn't edible. Fresh crab, clams, insects, bird eggs, berries, pizza, Chinese takeout, bring it on! Although raccoons don't have the abilities that Rocket has, they do have their own version of superpowers when it comes to finding food in the dark. Raccoons are primarily nocturnal, coming out at night to find food. And while they can't see at night like cats can, they can, however, see things in the dark by feeling it with their hands. You can almost liken it to the way dolphins see things with sonar or dogs can smell with their noses. Although they don't have opposable thumbs like primates do, their paws, unlike cats and dogs, have no webbing in between their digits, so they can grasp things with surprising dexterity. Enough dexterity to grab a coin out of your pocket or probably even fire a gun. When they grasp an object, they can tell, just by touch, what the object is and whether it can be eaten or not. Add the fact that they can rotate their head 180 degrees and climb down trees head first, and you have a pretty mean superhero. Their favorite source of food is a trash can. 
and trash can manufacturers need to take into account the raccoon issue when designing cans. While many bins are raccoon-proof at the start, eventually the mass bandits figure them out. Urban raccoons, being one of the few animals able to survive in the city, have very few natural predators. In fact, a raccoon is more likely to be killed by a car than anything else. This is why you'll notice that raccoons could care less if you chase them off your porch with a broom. Back in the early 1900s, scientists were interested in testing the intelligence of a lot of different animals, including raccoons. One Walter Hunter set up memory tests to see if different animals could remember where they had seen food hidden. Sort of like, let's make a deal. Showing them food hidden behind one of three closed doors. After delay, the animal was allowed to choose one door. Hunter found that dogs and rats could choose the correct door, but only if they were allowed to stay focused on the door during the delay. Raccoons and human kids, on the other hand, could remember the correct door even if they were distracted during the delay. This finding was backed up by several studies at the time, which all suggested that raccoons were pretty smart. Smarter than cats and almost as smart as monkeys. Raccoon babies, kits, are born in the spring and are ridiculously cute, which leads some people to adopt them and bring them into their homes. Even President Coolidge kept one named Rebecca. This is a bad idea on so many levels. First, raccoons, no matter how cute, carry a large number of nasty parasites and worms, especially in their foul-smelling black poop. Second, those adorable kits grow up really fast, and in a few short months, they will be the equivalent of an evil toddler intent on destroying all your worldly possessions. Raccoons are smart enough to be easily trained, but too wild to be contained. Just like Rocket, Raccoons have no moral sense, and, unlike dogs, they don't show any guilt or remorse after they've pooped on your expensive rug. So word to the wise, leave baby raccoons outside, where they belong. So instead of bringing baby raccoons into your home, check them out on City Wildlife Rescue. It's a much better way to appreciate their cuteness. I'll put a link in the description. Make sure you go check them out and donate if you can. You are listening to Animal Voices on Vancouver's Co-op Radio, 100.5 FM CFRO, 100% listener-sponsored radio broadcasting live from the east side on unceded Coast Salish territories. Somewhere in the black mining hills of Dakota There lived a young boy named a Rocky Raccoon And one day his woman ran off with another guy Hit young Rocky in the eye Rocky didn't like that, he said, I'm gonna get that boy So one day he walked into town Booked himself a room in the local saloon Rocky Raccoon Checked into Rocky had come Equipped with a gun To shoot off the legs of his rival His rival, it seems Had broken his dreams By stealing the girl of his fancy Her name was McGill And she called herself Lil But everyone knew her as Nancy 
Hi, and welcome back to this week's show. Up next is a segment on the exotic pet trade in the United States and this heavily unregulated industry that is often not discussed. Currently, more big cats live in captivity than in the wild, and many Americans have large cats as companion animals. In our next segment, I've taken the audio from a Vice video and edited it down for our radio program. I would like to preface this video by saying that Vice is obviously not an animal rights organization, and they often use language that is not congruent with our program, for example, calling individuals it rather than he or she, but the content is still very important. Lastly, before going into this section, I would like to talk about the Exotic Feline Rescue Center, which is the focus of a lot of this content. Now, in the States, because of this exotic pet industry, They have come to a point where there are places such as the Exotic Feline Rescue Center where over 200 acres of land in Indiana are designated for individuals that are rescued from households that are neglecting these large cats. 15 employees and many interns care for over 150 big cats on a daily basis and fund themselves with merchandise and educational tours. Now, if any of you guys saw the Joe Exotic Netflix documentary about big cats, then you would also know a lot of these rescue centers are not exactly the most ideal solutions for this issue. Animals are still in cages and animals are still in captivity because obviously they cannot go back into the wild. So even though In this video, we hear someone taking an individual out of bad care or illegal care. We do still need to be critical about what we're hearing when people talk about sanctuaries and how, (laughs) as you've seen with the Vancouver Aquarium, that this type of animal rescue is not the be all end all. The actual solution would be outlawing owning these types of endangered individuals. Most of the people that say, I want to buy a tiger, are what you could classify as impulse buyers. People who say, if I raise it from a cub, it won't bite me, will it? I can housebreak it if it grows up in my house. It will never eat my children. you're a bad guy and you want to make money and have a much lower chance of getting caught, the wildlife trade is perfect because, you know, what's the likelihood that uh, some 
municipal police officer is going to know that the critter you have in your bag or that you have in your car is a legal lizard or the world's most endangered lizard. Even if they are apprehended, you don't see people going away for decades for selling endangered species. If you're selling drugs, you may go away for decades. Wildlife trafficking worldwide is estimated to be a $19 billion a year business, which puts it only underneath drug trafficking, human trafficking, and arms smuggling. It's as lucrative to deal in wildlife as it is to deal in heroin, cocaine, or automatic weapons. One, we need to save these species, and two, it's become a national security issue. And it's a worldwide issue that needs to be solved by many countries throughout the world to disrupt these criminal networks that are profiting in pretty much the death of a lot of these iconic species. In the wildlife trade, the types of people you run into are people just doing it for profit. And if that means wiping out the species, they'll move on to something else. Then there's the people that do it because of ego. It's almost like uh, the macho factor. Can I get the most dangerous, the most venomous, the hottest snake that's out there? Sometimes they just want to be able to say, look, I have this extremely rare animal that there's only X number left in the world, and I have one sitting here in my living room. There's a lot of exotic species that are held in the pet trade here in the United States. Some states make it illegal. Some states don't have regulations at all in regards to exotics or animals that aren't native to the state. It can be tigers, lions, cougars, leopards. Sometimes individuals will own chimpanzees. It's up to the states to regulate them within the states. Oh. My name is Joe Taft, and I am the founder and director of the Exotic Feline Rescue Center. Uh, the Exotic Feline Rescue Center houses about 225 big cats, including 140 tigers. We take cats from around the United States. Uh, to the best of my knowledge, we are the second largest collection of big cats in the country. We don't buy them, sell them, or breed them. We're strictly a rescue operation. These animals are bred in this country in captivity, and they have been for many, many generations. And they proliferated through private hands and went to people who had no idea or no ability to provide them care. You know, we don't have many people who say, I am prepared to make a 20-year commitment to an animal that I know can kill me and I know will eat me out of house and home. This animal belonged to a retired circus trainer. And when he retired, he walked an elephant into the barn and chained it to the floor and pulled nine big cats into the barn. And that's where they stayed in circus wheel cages for 10 years. Hi, hi. She lived her whole life in a cage that was five foot by seven. And despite the fact she's got this big habitat, when she gets bored or stressed, you see that little circle that she faces? That's part of the psychological impact on what's happened to her. About two years ago, there was somebody who had a large collection of big cats. For some reason, this guy went out one night and turned all of his cats loose and then committed suicide. And all of those cats ended up being killed because when you've got 60 lions and tigers running around at night, unsecured, 
that's the only thing you can do. When I started with Big Cats, there were no regulations of any kind involved. From the point of view of the state, it was no different than having a Cocker Spaniel or a German Shepherd. I just went to the local pet store and said, hey, I'll take one of those. I lived with the Leopard for almost 19 years. She had the run of my house. I mean, she slept in my bed all of her life. And most of the people who were involved in it were fairly serious about it. And then cats started being bred in puppy mills and sold on the internet, sold cheaply. We have some tigers that were sold at an auction for $25 a piece. These auctions take place in states where they don't have a state law against the sale of endangered species, or they don't have state laws against the, the buying and selling of exotic species, of species that aren't found in that state. And what typically then happens is that state is then used as a loophole to launder illegal big cats or illegal wildlife with legal. And what a lot of people don't understand is how those species got into the United States. How were those animals bred? There is a large amount of people here in the United States that feel like they want to have something that's rare. Oryx. Uh, we have a wallaby. The thing that bothers me, there's some crazy lady up in D.C. that, that because they're, well, they're extinct in the wild and they're endangered, she says, well, nobody should be shooting them. Well, the only reason that they're actually thriving is for raising them so they can be hunted. If she outlaws hunting of them altogether, guess what? People are gonna, gonna just get rid of them and say, well, they're not making me any money. I'm gonna get rid of them and or, right. or they're gonna shoot them out and then they are gonna go extinct. But by having them as like cattle, they're, they're flourishing. Today, we found a couple of people who have taken very good care of an animal for a long time in a very secure cage. Now you have to understand a lot of this is quite unusual for us. The owner thought he was going to be able to pick the animal up in his arms and put him in our cage. That didn't work out well. It was a dangerous situation. It's the kind of situation I do not ever like to see. If that would have been a wild cougar, then you'd have a lot of people that were either dead or in the hospital. We got the animal back in her original enclosure, and then we had to immobilize her. Too many people get these animals because it's an ego thing, because they want to say that they control a big cat, that they have a big cat for a pet. And these animals get huge, and I don't care how sweet they are. That is a potential danger. We pull cats out of places that are neighborhoods. There are kids and stuff nearby. That's a pretty scary thing. I think she's gonna make this transition really well. Now she's surrounded by tigers and leopards. She'll be able to see her neighbors. Her neighbors will be able to see her. And that's gotta be quite overwhelming for her. I mean, she could see three dogs from where she was, three dogs and a cat. This family also had a bear. And they lived someplace where there were no laws regarding the keeping of exotic animals. I mean, they weren't criminals. They weren't mean people. 
still people that keep lions and tigers and other big dangerous animals need to be under some kind of regulatory system. There are more big cats in private hands than there are in the wild now. You know, at some point, uh, you've got to say to yourself, what's the quality of life here? And if you have one of these creatures, you need to consider more than just the pride of ownership. It's a being, it's a life. You want a feline, get you a house cat. And now I'd like to share a short audio clip about pollinators and the diversity of ways that our plants are pollinated. This is a great subject as we approach summer and are in the midst of spring, seeing more and more flowers pop up around us. Here is some inter interesting content about how pollinators and plants have co-evolved with one another. Hi, my name is Kim, and today we're going to talk about pollinators. Welcome to McHenry County Conservation District's Wonders of the Wild. Flowers and other plants need pollination in order to reproduce. Luckily, there are hundreds of species of pollinators that help to make that happen. What you'll notice is that pollinators and flowers evolve together to find ways to make sure that the pollinator could drink the nectar from the plant and while doing so, pollinate the plant. You'll have flowers that are tubular. These are ones that are best for hummingbirds because they have the long beak and then the long tongue to reach into the depth of that flower. They also like flowers that are red and brightly colored. If you have a big wide open flower, that may be pollinated by beetles. They need a big landing pad to, to get onto the flower. Flowers that don't smell very nice tend to be pollinated by flies. There are all sorts of species of bees and bees prefer the brightly colored flowers and the flowers that are more easily accessible, as in they don't have to get into the tube of the flower. However, having said that, there is a flower called closed gentian that does not even open at the top on its own. The bumblebee that pollinates it has to actually open the petals and crawl down in in order to get to the nectar and then open it back up to get out. Butterflies, of course, are also pollinators. They are drawn to all different kinds of flowers, and some butterflies prefer the nectar of other flowers over certain ones. We've all heard about the monarch preferring milkweed, but that's actually preferring it to lay the eggs and then the caterpillar eating the milkweed. The adult butterfly will eat nectar from several different kinds of plants as long as they're brightly colored and open for their tongues to reach in and get the nectar. When you see white flowers, those may very well be pollinated by moths as they are visible at night. 
When you look at a pollinator, such as a bee, you'll notice that they're collecting pollen on their legs, kind of like little saddlebags full of pollen. They're not necessarily doing that on purpose because again, their benefit is the nectar that they can take from the flower, but the pollen then gets transferred from flower to flower, thereby pollinating those flowers. We are concerned about pollinators because even though you think that there are hundreds and hundreds of species of insects and just as many species of flowers, there actually are those that are disappearing. There is an endangered bumblebee in our area called the rusty-patched bumblebee. It's losing its habitat and hasn't been able to recover as quickly as other species. If you would like to help pollinators, you can plant a garden at home. One of the tips you should use is to pick a variety of wildflowers that bloom at different times of the year. If you can have flowers blooming from April through October, you'll be providing nectar for pollinators the entire season. And don't forget to respect the local plants and animals in your conservation areas. Before going into our closing remarks, I want to play the song Hummingbird by B.B. King. Uh, we've been talking about pollinators and we've been talking about other, earlier than the show, we've been talking about really heavy content. And so I just wanted to play a song that is really enlightening. And we just came out of Earth Day yesterday. So I've just been thinking a lot about songs that invigorate us. Um, so if you're on your commute right now, if you're driving to the grocery store, roll down the windows, smell the air, and listen to this song.
And she gives me a little understanding In her special way And I just have to say In my life I love the world Because she's more than I deserve And she gets me where I live I'll give all I have to give I'm talking about I see her in the morning She's little and she loved me My lucky day Don't flower You have been listening to the Animal Voices Radio Show here on 100.5 FM Co-op Radio on unceded and ancestral Tsleil-Waututh, Musqueam, and Squamish territories here in so-called Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada, Turtle Island. Please join us for next week's show on Friday, April 30th, where I will have a show dedicated to International Respect for Chickens Day. We will have Karen Davis on next week's show, which is super exciting. She is the founder of the United Poultry Concerns. Um, You can see her more about them at upc-online. We will also be talking about a campaign to stop a company called Tractor Supply Co. from selling live chicks at their tractor supply stores. Uh, So definitely tune in next week to hear an episode dedicated to chickens. We here at the Animal Voices radio show modestly ask you to keep connected with Animal Voices via the World Wide Web. Our past shows can be listened to on our website at animalvoices.org. Our past podcasts are also available on Apple Podcasts and Google Play, so you can subscribe to us there and never miss a show. Join our Facebook page and join us on Instagram as well, both at Animal Voices Vancouver. And if you want to get in touch, let us know how we're doing, or send along a show segment suggestion, you can send us a note on Facebook 
or send us an email to info at animalvoices.org. And yes, we're on Twitter as well, Animal Voices YVR. I will be leaving you today with a song called Indian Summer by Beat Happening. It's been super beautiful outside recently, and so this is a song that's been stuck in my head. Enjoy it, and after that, stay tuned for Radio Ego Shock with Alex Smith as usual. Have a beautiful day, stay safe at home, and remember to always be kind to the animals. Breakfast in cemetery, boy tasting wild cherry, touch girl apple blossom, just a boy playing possum, we'll come back for Indian summer, we'll come back for Indian summer. We'll come back for Indian summer What is that cheerful sound? Rain falling on the ground We'll wear a jolly crown Buckle up, we're wayward bound We'll come back for Indian summer We'll come back for Indian summer. We'll come back for Indian summer and go a separate way. I touch your hem, you say. Let's stroll down Martin Way. Plums, abandoned farm Who let norms come to harm We'll come back for Indian summer We'll come back for Indian summer We'll come back for Indian summer And go our separate ways Cover me with rain Walk me down the lane I'll drink from your drain We will never change, no matter what they rain. We'll come back for Indian summer. We'll come back for Indian summer. We'll come back for Indian summer and go our separate Cemetery, picnic on wild berries, French toast with molasses, croquet and baked Alaskas. We'll come back for Indian summer. We'll come back for Indian summer. We'll come back for Indian summer. Cover me with rain.